0: Welcome to part two of this week's episode with Dr. Rose Mutiso and Rachel Strom, co-founders of the Mwazo Institute in Nairobi, Kenya. FYI, Rose and Rachel are looking to hire a program manager, but the deadline is quickly approaching. Applications must be submitted by Wednesday, October 18th. Check out our website, ufamuafrica.com, where we link to more information about how you can join the team at Mwazo. Now here's the rest of our conversation. more broadly about research, I want to ask you a question that was originally articulated by Vassar College political scientist Zachariah Mompili. As you might know, the second half of this first season of Ufahamu Africa, we're asking our guests to answer a question that Zachariah raised in episode 24. So he has six questions, but I'm just going to ask you one, um, one that hasn't been asked of our other guests. So I hope you're ready. So, what are our relationships, both to our own institutions and to African institutions, and what role do new communications technologies play in subverting or reinforcing those dynamics? We had um, we
1: got this question. We had a very interesting conversation earlier about it and how to answer it. Um, so, I think we'll we'll sort of split up our answers. So. Um, I'm going to speak a bit about, um, I'll speak a bit about some of the institutional questions and Rose um, will speak a bit about some of the technology issues. Sure. So in terms of our relationships, our relationships to our own institutions, also just to sort of lay out everyone's positionality here, so you know, I'm, of course, I'm American, I'm a Surgeon from Kenya, we've both done all of our undergraduate postgraduate in the U.S., so we're both sort of coming from these U.S. institutions of higher education. I think that sort of coming, we, we've touched at several points in this conversation on Sort of the question of like where where we both stand in relation to academia. You know, did we ever we thought about going into academia? We both decided not to. Again, not because we don't value it, but because we thought we might have individually more value elsewhere. Um, and I actually think that's been that's been a really interesting and position to sort be starting Marazzo. And I think specifically in the sense that. I'll share my own experience here. I've I've gotten so much positive feedback from my colleagues, you know, within within um, you know political science in the U.S. at Berkeley and elsewhere, and people because it's it, it's a pretty widely shared recognition that we do need more African voices in the study of Africa, and that's a pretty you know that's a pretty obvious a pretty obvious statement. And at the same time, many of the people who you know who share that who share that belief. Aren't really structurally in a position to do a lot about it, and if you think about certain career incentives that academics have in the U.S., people you know just they need to be so intensely focused on their own careers, on getting tenure, and that makes it really difficult, I think, to step back and sort of think about or certainly have time to address some of these broader structural imbalances and inequalities in global academia that are privileging some voices over others. You know, and again, that's not and that's not the fault of any individual scholar. It's sort of the system that we're all in. And of course, there are some really good efforts, you know, especially in political science, like, um, you know, as you know, like women also know stuff, or, um, you know, the Ralph Punch Summer Institute, so it's you know, different um, initiatives that are promoting gender diversity and, you um, ethnic diversity within the discipline, but the average scholar probably isn't directly involved in running that. And so in a way, Rose and I are sort of, we, we sort of find ourselves, we, we think, as I said earlier, we think about a lot about ourselves as a bridge between, between different types of institutions, between American and African academic institutions, between academia and government industry. And so in a way, I think that being sort of you know having experience in academia, coming out of that world, but then so we're we have a lot of experience, but we don't necessarily have some of the same constraints in terms of you know focusing on the tenure clock or something like that. And so that's actually given us a lot of advantages, I think, in being able to sort of step back, think a bit critically about what are the gaps that aren't being met in African academia right now, where are the places we can use land, can be, you know, what partnerships can we usefully build. And so um, we're definitely very keen to continue building partnerships with U.S. institutions, um, especially, actually, we're very interested in working with academics in the African diaspora, many of whom are in the U.S., and I know many of whom are very interested in sort of giving back to institutions in their home countries or elsewhere in Africa. Mm-hmm. And so I think we think there's a lot of potential for really useful partnerships between U.S. institutions and African. but again, you, sort of, you need people who are in the right place who can sort of serve as that bridge, and that's a lot of what we're hoping to do. Uh, I think Rachel has said
2: a lot. I was just going to chime in. To uh, a lot of, uh, I, I'm in complete agreement uh, with what uh, she just said. I was just going to chime in to um, add a little bit of kind of my perspective is also a little bit interesting because I come from a technology background and I, I've been it's been very curious in terms of um, dis, there's a really disciplinary bias I think in terms uh, when you come to research about Africa towards the social sciences hmm. then. <laughs> And this is something I've always wondered about. So, for example, energy research in my field is actually a very kind of techy field. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the US, the people who are energy researchers are like super tech people running massive models, <laughs> you know, energy system models. You know what I mean? Just kind of very, very techy. Um, and there is massive social science input, in and I really consider myself an interdisciplinary. Uh, but uh, you still get a, a lot of the technical people, and, and I think that the, that kind of technical research is uh, very kind of capital and resource intensive, and. You know, you can kind of see why in the U.S. like those like the massive computational centers where you need to run these models or like fancy telescopes, or to kind of do technology um, technology exploration. um, Kind of those those are those exist uh, in 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 the West and not 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 as much in, in Africa. But then, like when I came into this kind of energy needs development sector, that's completely dominated by a lot of the social scientists and political scientists, um, a little bit of you know econ. But it, it just, I just was very kind of struck by why is this bias so strong in the other direction? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing is, uh, so research I think is pretty resource intensive wherever you go, and which is why I think advocating for more, like somebody has to pay for research. Um, and we have ways to do research in a more low cost way. But the truth is, even for social scientists. Uh, as as Rachel said if the entire incentives if your research all the incentives and the whole structure set up so that like your work necessarily has to be Planted and based in the U.S., so whether it's the overhead that of the grants goes university, all the students you have to support—you know—it's—it's it's not as easy to kind of because the funding comes from, let's say, the U.S. side. It's not as easy to. I, I think a, a much smaller fraction of that will kind of inevitably make its way say to Africa, and maybe in the form of like you know the people who run the surveys, whatever. But there are pieces of that research that are kind of transferable to Africa. But I, I think this still a lot of kind of um, resource that necessarily has to stay within that system in the U.S. And then I think that this this is more um, magnified with the sciences where pieces of that research are difficult to roll out outside of where the equipment and everything, all the investment is. And so, um, and yet it's really important for Africans to learn these tools to ask these questions to kind of kind of explore and pursue ask and pursue these questions um both locally but um i think that the the kind of leapfrogging quote unquote uh, mm-hmm. or subversion using new communication of this kind of um power dynamic is, is much more difficult in the sciences and we do have some specific pods for like people like games and well contrast, uh, especially the health sciences trying to kind of create more of that knowledge production and build actual labs and things like that on the continent, but um, I think in that sense, uh, we feel like it's really important to kind of maintain that bridge, as Rachel said, to, to be in conversation with the Western academics, especially in technology, where a lot of the resources and the tools are, and, you know, we've been talking about it Mawaz, so like, we need to send people to conferences or to, like, you know, to do research, visiting research gigs, just ways to kind of see, see that world and experience it because we still don't have... Uh, we're not set up for for that that level of research here just yet, especially and, and in some disciplines more than others. I do think that we want so we want partnership, but it is really important to force the partnerships to become more equal over time. And so this is I we I, I run all of these um, interviews with local women. Um, University of Nairobi Kenyatta, just a few kind of Nairobi based universities and you know, very qualified women who basically were saying they're reduced to basically research assistants. But like these are professors uh, because the grant is designed conceptualized like submitted out there the money comes there and like they just need to check the box and they have you know and say we have a local collaborator and that person is just kind of coordinating your like enumerators or whatever and so i think that this is something that as mawazo uh we really are kind of wanting to change the dynamic in a small way but we're also very cognizant of the fact that um we we are trying to equalize a playing field but there are some resources that are lacking here and how can we tap into them
1: yeah, definitely. And actually, I'll pick up on something Rose just said about sort of building equal partnerships, not just any partnership, um, and also segue to the technology part of this question. One of the things that came up for me in thinking about this question of how, you know, as you said, how do new communications technologies the sort of subvert or reinforce relationships between the power balances between um, African and non-African institutions? And one of the things that, that I was actually thinking about was the way that... Um, You know, the Internet has sort of had paradoxical effects that it's, on the one hand, it's really democratized access to academic articles and and often books as well. And so, you know, works by African scholars that might not have been as accessible outside the continent, you know, 20 or even 10 years ago, or suddenly, you know, they're they're on Google scholar. It's fantastic. At the same time, there's just such an explosion of... In available articles that people really have to, people essentially have to develop these heuristics for figuring out what they ought to pay attention to. And one of the things that I was really struck by in my program is how often I was seeing scholars recommending, mostly recommending articles from other academics that they were personal friends with, or, you know, they got into the same, they got into the same graduate program or something like that. And so there's almost this, there's almost this sort of like tribalist, you know, approach to handling this complete overload of academic articles that are now out there, and that sort of makes sense as a tool for you know narrowing narrowing the number of articles that you might have time to pay attention to. But I think that that so paradoxically, African scholars might have a bit more visibility because of technology. But at the same time, right? Like technology doesn't exist independent of society. People are still very dependent on their networks to figure out what they're paying attention to, and if African scholars are still excluded from those networks. You know, perhaps they've not because they've not gone to university in the West or they're not at the same conferences or something like that, then that's not necessarily as helpful to them. And so, um, so there's still all of these questions about, um, I think Laura, Laura C, who's a mutual, mutual friend of, um, several several of us here has, has quoted, has quoted before a phrase that, um, people aren't necessarily the voiceless, they're the unheard and I think that's, that has always stayed with me in the sense that there are loads of African scholars who are already doing really good work. We think there are loads more who could do really good work, you know, with the right support. But there is this separate question, of who are we choosing to pay attention to? What's sort of, the political economy of attention in academia? And that's almost, and so that's a broader conversation that really has to happen within, you know, North American and European institutions as well.
0: So let's talk a little let's let's move to something a little bit lighter because I'm I'm actually getting kind of depressed about this. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's hard like I mean let me let me just say, like I'm really inspired by what you all are doing, and I have a lot of hope for you, especially given the energy and this conversation that we're having. I'm still disappointed in the broader global capitalist system of ideas and how, you know, I mean, even just listening to Rose talk about for example, instruments, you know, that one would need for you know some of these explorations in science. You know, it's just it's disheartening. And and I'm glad that there's something like Mawaza that's going to fight against that. And I just hope that you know there's a there's a broader groundswell that recognizes how important a diversity of ideas is and how important it is. To include, you know, a whole range of already, you know, smart and hardworking scholars into these kind of networks of knowledge production um, that we're engaged in here in the West, and if we don't do that, that you know, we're actually going to be missing out. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. With you. Um, I would say,
2: so yeah, I, I really, yeah, I, I gravitate towards, like, depression and optimism. Um, <laughs> it's, just it's just a just, cycle. It's a cycle. Like, I was just writing today about how I'm both a technology optimist and pessimist at the same time. <laughs> but I think one thing, I try to take the long view, you know, to be honest, like, the question of diversity of voices is completely unresolved, even in the West, that so I think we had similar conversations about representation. But, like, even if you look, like, you know, five decades, you know, back, just how how narrow that pool was even in the west and so um, you know 100 years ago 200 years ago like who are the people who have really shaped the conversation for up to up to this point really um, and, and yet i think that we've seen massive strides and I, I think that we're just a little bit behind in that cycle here in, in africa but you know i my vision of the utopia is you know kind of just kind of this kind of paradise of uh, academics all over the world pulling hands and being equal partners is I think I think one of those stress tests for me is when you know when somebody uh Rachel and I talk about this you know like someone in Kenya can like their focus could be I don't know French history or like you know uh, I don't know folk arts in <laughs> Wisconsin whatever <laughs> and vice versa you know you know when, when somebody in the U.S. is, is, is thinking or studying Africa that's 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 not unusual. It's actually the norm. Um, I recently was uh, told about this group in Mexico that is studying like Africa stuff, and it's like, what? Why are they? <laughs> you know. And then why am I questioning it? Like, you know, I think that this this whole world belongs. You, you know, we, we we really want to equalize. There are no questions that belong to, it, to just one person or the other, and I think that's the future that we're working towards. Um, and we're really far from it. Uh, but I I, I I can see. We do have a little bit of uh, past experience to work off of, and I think we've made massive strides
1: in some parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree, and I'll uh, I'll add to that. Yeah, I also I mean I would say I'm a, I'm a completely unfettered optimist, and obviously African companies are facing a lot of challenges, but I'm I'm actually very optimistic about sort of the future, specifically the future of universities in Africa. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, there's so much demand for higher education. I think you do see, you know, universities in many countries are going through this really interesting stage now is, I mean, historically the enrollment of the people who are at university age, so between you know 18 and I think late 20s um, in Africa, it's about six percent of that age group, compared to more than 40% in some European countries. So even even now, right? Like that's um, you have like university enrollment at a pretty low base, but it's growing really rapidly. There's just, you know there's so much demand for this, and I think you see universities working you know not not always not always completely successfully, but often successfully to really accommodate this new demand. You see some really interesting conversations happening about the use of evidence based policy-making in different sectors. There's some very interesting work going on out there about sort of you know documenting um, success stories and cases where evidence was put into use. And um, yeah, and women's rights as well, and you see massive progress in that. So I'm going back to the question of you know why we're, why we're in Nairobi, someone someone asked me this a while ago, and one of the things I just keep thinking of is that you know Kenya and, and other African countries are places where you can almost see change happening in front of your eyes. like there's so much there is so much you know, so many positive steps that are being taken. And I think that's that's just an incredibly interesting and inspiring thing to see, and that's inspiring, you know again not because people aren't, there's, no, there's not a lack of diversity, but what's inspiring is when people are working together and working, you know, working to overcome that. So I'm actually... I, I actually think this is... I think this is a very hopeful story for me in a lot of ways.
0: Inshallah, it stays that way. And yes. So before we go, is there any book that you're reading now or have read recently that you found interesting and would encourage our listeners to pick up? Uh, yeah, so...
2: <laughs> I know it was recommended to... Potentially uh, pick an African author. And I'm going to go in the complete opposite direction. (laughs) Allow me to explain. So I just finished reading Middlemarch, which is an excellent book by George Eliot, and um, I'm somebody who, you know, you know, I went, I did all my schooling till end of high school in, in Kenya, and then I went to the U.S., and there's nothing like just, like, really smart, like, 17, 18-year-old Americans who kind of have read the canon, like, they've read all the good books, <laughs> you know, and have this idea of, like, what is, you know, what is good, what is not, and what, you know, about, like, what somebody who's educated should know, and so I think that I really have always had very strong feelings about this idea of, like... The canon, or the things that, like every smart person, quote unquote, should read, and so I have actually very, very very interest But the other day, and I really resisted all this kind of Victorian stuff, aside from a, a little bit of a weakness for uh, period adaptations, <laughs> just, just healthy, like like any any, any normal person would. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> so, Someone tell me about Middlemarch, someone I really respect, uh, told me that it was their favorite book, and that kind of gave me pause, because I, I you know, I, I know of it, and I am just like, what am I, it's, I have no interest in reading a book about, like, ladies and, like, Victorian era, I don't know, having tea or doing needlework whatever they do. <laughs> um, this book is amazing. It's one of the best books I've ever read. I just finished it, um, and what struck me is just so beautifully written, but also how, um, I mean, it's, so much is going on. Uh, what a, you know, commentary on the human condition, our hopes, and our dreams, um, just both at the kind of like interpersonal level, but also this kind of the many structural changes that are happening when the book was set in terms of reform in England and, and how people respond to change. And I was just struck by how the relevance of this book cuts across time and geography in a way that I could imagine. Like, there would be passages where some, like, teenager dreaming about her future and her marriage, whatever, like, the were so resonant with me and, like, even my 17-year-old stuff in Arabian. So I super highly recommend it, and um, maybe I will pick, pick another one up from the quote-unquote canon.
1: <laughs> but yeah, that is my recommendation.
0: Thanks, Rose. Ra- Rachel, did you have a book?
1: I do, actually. So I, um, I have an African one, so we're switching <laughs> roles here. Actually, I have several So I'll recommend an author, who is Nedia um, Korakor who is um, a Nigerian-American. And she writes, um, essentially, African science fiction. And everything I've read by her has been outstanding. But I'll recommend sort of two um, series of short novels. So one is called the, um, the Binti series. And this is basically about things um, including but not limited to space travel and cultural clashes in northern Namibia in the future. <laughs> and it's just beautifully written. Um, all of her, um, most of her protagonists are women, and so that's also resonated with me. Beautifully written, incredible world building, so lovely. Um, there are now two novels in the series. And then she also has another one, and the second novel in, in this series just came out. So this is um, the Akata series, which is Akata Witch and Akata Warrior. Um, and so this is set in Nigeria, and it's about a young woman who sort of initiated into this world of mystical powers Um, and has to learn to navigate that. And so they're, again, you know, just beautifully, beautifully written, compelling characters. Um, But one of the things that stood out to me, someone asked me recently sort of what made African science fiction distinctive, you know, based on what I've read. And so I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about his work and was thinking about the way that, you know, her work does have these very traditional elements of science fiction and fantasy, you know, things like space travel or something like that. But she also sort of, not only does she reframe African traditions as being perfectly compatible with these things that we might think of as, you know, space age, advanced, what have you, and she sort of, you know, collapses the idea that there's some, there's some, like, disjuncture there. but she also sort of she explicitly has African tradition being a source of strength and you know being advantageous and also comforting to the protagonists as they're off on their spacefaring adventures or traveling through time or what have you um, and so it's really it's a really cool sort of blending of different of different genres and elements and it's very well done so many core four, four highly recommended
0: great well thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week yeah, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity yeah, thank you it's a lot of fun That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. We're at ufahamuafrica.com or on Twitter at UfahamuAfrica. We're currently looking for more musical artists to feature, and we're also eager to hear your feedback about the podcast. Please just send an email to ufahamuafrica at gmail.com. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by the government department. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama.